Okay, our family is rejoicing that uh, Amanya Vincent has landed from Haiti and is now adjusting to her new nest. Please, uh, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we do give praise. We thank you for bringing Amanya to us, and we pray, Lord, that you would help her in her adjustment. We pray also, Lord, for the Lents and the Brants and the, the Donaldsons, Lord, as they wait for uh, their children. We pray, Lord, that all the details would be worked out and, and that those transitions and, and that passport would, would work out quickly. Father, we thank you for the choice that these families have made to serve in this way by adoption. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with them through that. We pray also, Lord, that you would be with us today, that you would help us to understand what you want all of us to learn and to do as we try to apply your word to our lives. We give you all praise and glory, Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Um, When um, Christy and I returned from Haiti, if you all recall, if you saw us in close to that time, we were pretty much overwhelmed. Uh, And as we talked last month, uh, I was just struggling with what do you do with all of this suffering that we saw over there? How do you help them without making the situation worse? Uh, And so, as I mentioned then, what I decided to do was, I don't know what to do, so maybe I should teach about this. Uh, and that's the best way to learn. And uh, what uh, Christy and I have been going through is a book called When Helping Hurts. Um, and uh, this is a, a good place to start. You know, we'll probably refer to other things and include other sources and people who have been involved in ministry in talking about this issue of how do we as a church, as a body, reach out and help people? What's the most effective way to do that? Uh, Today, we want to continue with laying that foundation. And to start off, I want to uh, mention something. I think it's at the bottom of your sheet there. Something that we would tell our children over and over again as as they grew up and at which they would again roll their eyes. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Uh, Starting here with Jesus. After he was tempted by Satan, he started his ministry in his kind of his home region of Galilee. At that time, the Jews were living under the chafing yoke of the Romans. they were they had been promised a Messiah long before to restore David's throne, the kingdom. Now, if you'll open your Bibles, you might want to keep them handy. We're going to do a lot of reading today. The prophet in Isaiah chapter 9 said this, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land. The light will shine on them. For you, the Messiah, will break into the yoke of their burden 
and the staff that beats their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors and at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now think, handles Messiah, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Khaled, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish, will accomplish this. This promise at the point of Jesus' ministry was centuries old. And he started his, when he started his ministry. And so you can understand that there was a little bit of anxiety on the part of the faithful. Luke chapter 4 records what happened when the carpenter's son returned home. And there starting in verse 16 it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set those who are oppressed to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and then gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now can you imagine how stunned the worshipers were upon hearing that. Could it be that the time had come that their Messiah was there? Well, later, when Jesus sought, He was sought after to heal the sick, starting at verse 42 of that same chapter, it records this significant statement. When Jesus, when the day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for Him and they came to Him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So we see the mission of the Son of God was to spread the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And there are both a present, and a future aspect, a now and a not yet to his kingdom. The fruition of the future kingdom will be a new heaven and a new earth uh, when, as John writes in Revelation 21, that God himself will be among men and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But Jesus also said, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is now. One could describe this present aspect of the kingdom as renewal or regeneration of the world through Christ to restore His health, beauty, and freedom. Remember, Jesus said in the synagogue, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you ask any garden variety evangelical, why did Jesus come to the earth? you'd likely hear a response like, well, he came to the earth to live and die on the cross for our sins so that we can go to heaven. And that would be true. But is that the complete story? Compare that answer with how Paul describes Jesus' mission in Colossians chapter 1, where we'll start at verse 13. For he... God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, again Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul tells us here that Jesus not only creates all things and he holds all things together, but he reconciles all things to the Father. When something is reconciled, it's returned to the way that it should be or it is put back in right relationship. The curse resulted in in decay and brokenness and death from the garden. Jesus, on the other hand, brings healing to the world. In other words, He reconciles all things. He puts back into a right relationship with God all things. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. Question. How did Jesus manifest or make clear His deity on earth well John the Baptist here in the afternoon as J the B after spending his life proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah surprisingly asked about Jesus's authenticity just before his head was to be to be removed and some of us, most of us probably read in our integrated Sunday school uh, a few weeks ago in Luke 7, G- John's question, where he asked, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, he was saying, Am I going to die for something? Jesus could have answered, Well, 
J the B, didn't you witness the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove and audibly hear the Father say, this is my Son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Could have said that, but he didn't. Instead, he said this. Go to the messengers, go back to John, and report to him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus did not convince merely with his words, but also by his actions. What if Jesus had simply said in, in this, the presence of all this pain and suffering that, that he witnessed, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I could heal you, but the only thing I really care about is winning your soul. They, and to be honest, probably most of us, would have had some doubt. Jesus did praise those folks who didn't need a sign or a miracle, like the the Roman centurion. But they were the exception. Jesus and later the disciples clearly gained attention and credibility by what they did by their healings, their miracles, their signs, and their wonders. When Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem for His triumphal entry, uh, it records in, in Luke chapter 19 that the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The apostles, likewise. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached in Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested, accredited to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Clearly, Action spoke as loud, if not louder, than words. Well, what about us today? Generally, we don't see, much less do, miracles, do we? Now, don't get me wrong. If God wants miracles, He can. But, if the things that you may have heard or perhaps even allegedly seen on big hair TV were actually true, don't you think that people would be thronging to those faith healers from all over the world? How would that light be hidden under a bushel with the Internet if that was really genuine? While miracles may not be in our arsenal today, we can still act as God empowers us. Ministry to the poor has always been a a part of God's economy. 
In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's chosen, was to point forward to the king and help others anticipate his kingdom. This included the king's concern for the poor. Care for the sick and poor included the Sabbath day, a day of rest for the slave and the alien in Exodus 23. The Sabbath year canceled debts, allowed the poor to glean food from the fields, set slaves free, and equipped the slaves to be productive in Deuteronomy 15. The Jubilee year released slaves and returned land to their original owners in Leviticus 25. There was a tithe taken just for the care of the poor in several passages. God's plan was to do away with poverty among his people. He de- in fact, he declared in Deuteronomy 15, there should be no poor among you. However, Israel didn't exactly take that as seriously as they should. Please turn, if you will, to chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. And I'll summarize here the beginning. Isaiah starts with a reproof of Judah and Jerusalem in which he says that they are less understanding than an ox and a donkey. In fact, he calls them a sinful nation weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, who have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, and turned away from Him. Just getting started. Isaiah then hurls the ultimate insult by calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. He basically says, enough! Enough! With these worthless offerings and sacrifices, incense and new moon festivals and feasts. He says, even your, if you multiply your prayers, in verse 15, God will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. Later, in verse 18, there is this brief interlude. One of the most stark reprieves in God's Word that you'll ever see. An oasis of hope in the middle of a vicious desert of condemnation where he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red like crimson, They will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. And then Isaiah quickly returns to his severe chastisement. Now, how can Israel regain God's blessing and forgiveness? Well, just before that passage we'd read, Isaiah gives the key to their reconciliation with this remarkable passage, starting in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. Then, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Seems pretty straightforward, simple, doesn't it? However, they don't seem to get it. Please turn over to chapter 58. Of Isaiah. There it says, starting in verse 1, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, 
Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. In other words, they were doing all the right religious things on the outside. But verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Despite their outward righteousness, they knew they were not being blessed for some reason. So Isaiah explains what's really going on here. Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? You see, Isaiah says they don't really understand that simply a public showing of humility is not really what God desires. Instead, verse 6, Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your life will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and He will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing figure and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then... Your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Now, why was Israel later taken captive? Certainly, idolatry played a large role in that. But Isaiah gives us a much broader picture. It seems Israel was practicing the outward signs of religion. They were worshiping. They were offering sacrifices. They were celebrating holy days and feasts. They were fasting and praying. Now, what would that look like today? Could we not say that the equivalent was They were going to not just Sunday meeting, but Sunday school. Maybe a a Wednesday night Bible study, a small group of some sort. Uh, Maybe going to the church retreat every year. Maybe listen to Christian music rather than rock or country. Huh? Well, you might say, wait a minute, Kent. Just a couple of weeks ago, Mike said that's exactly what we should be doing. And you would be right. Because those are good things. Mike said, if you love the church, 
the way that Jesus loves the church, you will show up and you will be engaged with the body. But I did not hear Mike say, that's the goal and the end game. If we do what we ought to do, our duty, Christ says, we are simply worthless servants. If that's all we do. It kind of looks to me like if God's people want to be successful, if they want to experience His blessing, if we want our prayers answered and we desire His guidance, we've got to do more than just show up. We've got to actually do something with our lives. Isaiah makes it clear that God was disgusted with Israel for only doing the outward. He called them Sodom and Gomorrah not because of what they did, but because of what they failed to do. Care for the poor, loose the chains of injustice, clothe the naked, spend themselves on behalf of the, of the hungry. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that the church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And the church should be the embodiment of Jesus Christ who declared to the poor, the lame, and the leper in word and deed that His kingdom brings healing. In other words, talk and walk. Now, this talk and walk nature of ministry of the church started early on. Luke 9 recounts that when Jesus sent out His 12 disciples, He told them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. We also see that when the church was forming in Acts 4, Luke tells us there was no needy person among them. And this seems to relate back to what it said in Deuteronomy 15 where it says there should be no needy person among you. Clearly, if we go by the Bible, the church, you and I, are to care for our brothers and sisters. If you doubt this, consider 1 John 3.16, starting there where it says, when we know love by this, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our walk talks louder than our talk talks. That same care and concern is to spill over to others outside the body. That is, if we want them to know of the love of Christ in us. The church is to embody Jesus Christ by doing what He did. Declare in both word and deed that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to take a little historical perspective here and maybe take us from way back then to where we are right now. In James 2, uh, he tells us that God chose the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith 
to inherit the kingdom he promised to them who love him. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 27, Paul adds that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that they may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. If you think back, this is what Jesus acted out. Just as he was the creator of the universe, was born in a dirty stable, and then he chose for his triumphal procession into Jerusalem uh, a donkey for his limo, so he uses people, poor people, in his ministry to work through rather than the people on the inn. The in crowd, those with power and fame. While there's really no, honestly, no virtue in poverty, and there's nothing evil about material things, as long as they don't become idols, God chose to reveal his kingdom by those whom the world would least expect. By those whom the world considers the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Now, I don't know to you, but to me it kind of seems like an odd strategy for building your kingdom, except that history tells us it works. It has been well documented that the engagement of suffering was key to the explosive growth of the early church. Cities in Rome were, had high mortality rates due to poor sanitation, water quality, rampant disease, crime, deviant behaviors, a lot of social instability. But instead of fleeing all that stuff, the early church ministered to the suffering in the cities. The pagan response was basically each man for himself. So this self-sacrificing love exhibited by the Christians stood in stark contrast. The immigrants, the poor, the hurting were drawn to the love, the care, the stability, and the sense of community offered by the early believers. Even the rulers noticed. Sometime in the 300s, Emperor Julian complained of the loss of loyalty from his subjects in a message to a pagan priest. He said, the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Jumping forward, up to the 20th century, Christians continued to minister to the physical and spiritual needs around them. In England and in the United States, it was Christians who led the fight to end slavery, to slow the destruction of alcoholism, to protect workers from the abuses of some of the industrialists, even securing the right to vote for women. Now, paradoxically, It was during, not because of, these battles that the church came to a fork in the road. You see, in the 1800s, to get a postgraduate education, you pretty much had to go to Europe. And so many of the uh, seminary students went to Europe and sometimes to Germany and some of the seminaries over there. And what they were taught over there was the thing called higher criticism. And this was a view of the, of, of the Word that said, yeah, there's a lot of good things in the Bible, but it cannot be interpreted literally. 
just got some good advice. This, in addition, at the very same time, Darwinism was all the rage. It was new. People thought, wow, they finally discovered where we came from. And so that put man in the driver's seat and God in the back seat in the minds of many. Now, this is a complicated subject, but at the risk of oversimplification, the end result was a split in the church. Some church groups, mostly mainline denominations, applying this higher criticism and influenced by Darwinism, started to emphasize social action as a way to bring about the kingdom of Christ. This was known as the church progressive era, and it lasted all the way up until World War I. On the other hand, fundamentalists or evangelical churches saw this social gospel as throwing out doctrine in Christ. But they reacted by focusing on soul winning only, but they retreated from the front lines of poverty alleviation. In fact, church historians refer to the first three decades of the 20th century as the great reversal in the evangelical approach to social problems. It is ironic, or perhaps telling, that the rise of the American welfare state started in the vacuum left by evangelicals. It was in the 1930s that the progressive President Franklin Roosevelt piggybacked off of the social gospel to justify his New Deal social policies. The next huge step up in the growth of the welfare state was Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, referred to as the Great Society starting in the 1960s. The point here is, is that the shift in, it was the shift in evangelical theology away from ministry to the poor that preceded the government's push for the welfare state, not the other way around. Today, we are in a new progressive era. But in this one, the church plays little, if any, role in concern for the poor. Instead, the government has taken the place of the church as the apparent source of support for the poor through the power to tax and give away. Now, some conservative commentators have pointed out that the economic policies of our government has resulted in more poverty, in millions more on government assistance, and they would be right. They point to reports that government spending on welfare has increased almost a third, 32%, in the last four years. But hold on. No one can avoid blame for this. The Heritage Foundation indexed dependence on government. In other words, they set up a scale for it. These are arbitrary numbers that, so we can get a, a comparative analysis. And it starts at the, the number 20 when Johnson's War on Poverty began in 1962. Okay? The index climbed to 100 in 1980, the year that Ronald Reagan was elected. But it has climbed ever since up to 300. Okay? If you're doing your math, that is a 1,500% increase in dependence on government in the last 50 years. With the knowing support of both parties. Folks, that's not good. Now, while it may be true, 
that our economy, and therefore jobs, will not grow in the present climate of uncertainty, adding to poverty, I think the conservative criticism misses the point. Because I believe the results are intended. Not that government wants more people to suffer, but rather the government wants more people to think that they have avoided suffering because of the government. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Actually, the Romans pioneered this concept a long time ago. You see, they conquered folks. With more and more conquering, they had more and more slaves to do all their work. With that, you know, the common folk didn't have much to do. Hard to compete with slave labor. And so they had to come up with a way to keep them from rebelling and to keep them amused. And one of the things they did was they came up with this. They, they gave away or sold at very low cost food to the, to the folks. Uh, also came up, came up with some entertainment. That's what the gladiator was and, you know, everything in the circus. This giveaway was known as the dole. Uh, Henry Hazlitt, in uh, his book, The Conquest of Poverty, says this. The dole became an integral part of the whole complex of economic causes that brought the eventual collapse of the Roman civilization. It undermined the old Roman virtues of self-reliance. It schooled people to expect something for nothing when helping hurts. The comparisons between the U.S. and the Roman empires are striking. He who ignores history is doomed to repeat it. Now, the difference is that while the Romans certainly could maintain order by force, they simply wanted to avoid societal chaos, and they wanted to keep people happy. Our government instead chooses the simpler method of remaining in power by adding loyal voters through dependence on government welfare. There's no more effective way to remain in power than for the government to play Robin Hood. Rob from the rich legally through taxation and give to the poor, not only to keep the poor dependent, but to grow that class of dependents. Now, I say this not to make a political point, but to point out that biblical principles have meaning and adherence or ignorance or total intentional avoidance of those principles have consequences. While neither party can avoid blame, I suggest for us that we look inward. Christians have participated in this societal decline by failing to carry out the biblical mandate to not just preach the gospel, but to live it out. So, What should be the mission of the church today? I would suggest that it is the Great Commission. What's that? Matthew 28 tells us is that it is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What does it mean to make a disciple? Is it to hand them a gospel track? While evangelism is biblical, and commanded. 
The obsession or the preoccupation of, of the evangelical church with evangelism only, winning souls, period, is not biblical. Discipleship goes much further. It's a lifelong process involving relational interaction. And yes, ministering to the poor, the downtrodden, the defenseless. Now, what do we mean? What do we really mean by walk and talk? We are to proclaim the good news of the gospel. To do so, we must first learn the word of God through study and sound teaching. But what good does it do to learn all about God's Word on Sunday mornings if we don't apply it the other six days and 20-some hours of the week? We have to find ways to effectively communicate the Gospel. God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament, tells us that talk is important. But it must be matched, it must be confirmed, it must be demonstrated, it must be carried out with action. In other words, our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Now in Sunday school group this morning, we covered, we talked about this issue. And I got to, we're not going to even address this today, but I got to ask myself the question, am I? Doing either? Am I, am I even talking? But if, our, if we walk the talk, we will be much more effective. We must remember what James tells us. Faith without works is dead. We're not earning our salvation. He's just telling us that there's got to be substance to our faith. But he also says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us the ability to take it in more than any other land or generation in the past. Lord, we have so many resources to take it in. Lord, Help us to take in Your Word and then live it out in our lives. Help us figure out how we are to do that in a way that will bring reconciliation, will bring restoration, rehabilitation. We'll help folks so that they don't need help and they can go out and help others. Lord God, give us wisdom. We give You all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.